tonight's lesson as we talk about turning dreams into reality is something that's close to my heart. And I hope it's close to yours because nothing big has ever happened outside of someone dreaming. And God uses dreamers. One of the prophecies that would happen that would be fulfilled in the kingdom of God and its coming is that we would be a group of dreamers who would see things that nobody else had had the privilege of seeing. I read this somewhere about a father who was discussing his son's decision to change his major. He had went to college, and he was going to be a business major, and he went to a Christian college. After he got there, he changed his major to missions with an emphasis on campus ministry, and the father was asking his son, what motivated you to make that change? And he said, well, I dream of having a campus ministry with a 1,000 students and has 100 baptisms every year like my, like my campus ministry and, and the campus ministry teachers there. And the father said, so you, you, your teacher has been a part of a campus ministry that had 1,000 members in it and was baptizing 100 people a year? And the son said, the son said no, no he, never had, he never did any of that, but, but he dreamed about it. And I think a lot of times we're like that sometimes where we have these dreams and we sort of piggyback maybe on dreams and we're going, I have the dream, but we never see the dream turned into reality. And I believe that it's super important that you dream. I'd never want to squelch a dream, but I do want you to know that those dreams were not designed to stay just between your ears or in your mind. I believe that God wants to bring them to reality. As we talk about turning dreams into reality tonight, we're going we're gonna to walk through the first two chapters of Nehemiah. And I hope you'll really pay close attention and, and, and careful attention. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, whether that's in a, in a paperback or whether it's on your phone. If you'll turn there, I'll be in the New International Version. But we're going to walk through and we're going to look at nine marks of Nehemiah, who was a man who saw a dream turned into reality. In 586 B.C., Jerusalem was invaded and destroyed. And the Jews were deported to Babylon, which is now Iraq, and they were kept there for about 70 years. In 537, a group of Jews were allowed to return. In 516, the temple was rebuilt. In 458, Ezra led a second group of Jews back to Jerusalem to help to restore the city. And then, literally, decades later, Nehemiah shows up on the scene all of those people in the 30 or 40 years before went to Jerusalem with a, with a dream of seeing Jerusalem restored to its original beauty and glory. And yet when they got there, in the middle of being able to fulfill the dream, they lost the dream. And so for decades you had people who were devoted to restoring Israel, but yet it ended in something less than restoration, partial restoration, which was followed by a, a bit of decay. Nehemiah comes on the scene, and in 52 days he is able to do what they were unable to do in decades. You see, it's my prayer that you are a part of campus ministry students and campus ministers who have a dream just like your predecessors. It's my prayer that they had a dream. I think a lot of them have lost that. But if you look and see if there was a dream, it doesn't take very long to look around and go, okay, the dream that they had dreamed of the greatness of campus ministry and campus ministry shaping the kingdom and changing the entire world, that dream has not come to fruition. It's not become real. As a matter of fact, sometimes we've lost that. It's my prayer that you guys will decide that you're going to dream again about what God can do through you. That you'll be the generation that picks up the mantle of boldly saying, 
saying, I'm going to dream for God and we're going to see this happen, but I pray that you'll be the generation that transcends dreaming in a daydreaming kind of pipe dream way, then in a few years we'll get together in places like this and we'll realize that whether it was tonight or at some other point, God worked in your heart in a way to where you didn't just become a dreamer, you became a dream fulfiller. So let's talk about how you dream in a way. Nehemiah is the example of the dreamer who turns dreams into reality. So what changes, what was the change, what turned Nehemiah to where he goes from being who he is, a relative nobody that we would know nothing of, to somebody that we study when we talk about dream fulfillers? And again, we're going to talk about nine ways that you can turn, that you have to turn if you're going to turn away from someone who doesn't have a dream or someone who has a dream that will never see that dream fulfilled. And we're just going to walk through those two chapters, and I hope you'll make some notes. I hope you'll, it'll, it'll, it'll go down into your heart. I hope you'll share it with your group. But more than anything, I hope that you'll allow God to shape your dreams and your character with it. So how do you turn dreams into reality? How do you turn the tide from a broken situation to where the dream comes true? First of all, you have to turn selflessly. You have to dream, turn selflessly. You see, God's dreams will always, and you need to know this, God's dreams will always involve you. And God's dream will always involve me. God is not going to give me a dream that he doesn't expect me to share and to participate in doing it. But while God's dream always involves me, it's never about me. And there's a huge difference in knowing that this dream involves me and understanding then that this dream is not about me, it's about something else. So Nehemiah, as we come into the scene, as we get to know this young guy, if you go to Nehemiah chapter 1, the Bible says that he is living in a very comfortable position in a palace. He is away from Jerusalem. He is one of the pampered exiles that has been chosen to serve in the palace. But some people from Jerusalem come back to him, and they come back to visit. And the Bible says in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 2, Nehemiah says this, I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exiles and also about Jerusalem. Now understand, he doesn't really have to worry about Jerusalem because he doesn't live in Jerusalem. And he doesn't have to worry about the exiles because he is not one of those in wondering if he is surviving. He is well off in a comfortable position. But God tends to use people. The, the seed from which great dreams and accomplish comes, comes about is a selflessness that thinks about others even when we're comfortable. So I asked them about the condition of those in Jerusalem, and they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the providence are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. And so he says, listen, your brothers, those people that you're heavily disconnected from, they're in great trouble. And the city that you, that you know was God's city, it is in distress. And all of a sudden, Nehemiah begins to have something burn within him. But what I want you to recognize is that Nehemiah is not moved by his personal problems. He is moved by the people and the personal problems of people that he doesn't even know. You see, sometimes in our campus ministries, sometimes even for those who are brought out of the world, we can be so thrilled with what God has done, but when God brings us into his kingdom, into his palace, we tend to begin to focus on us, and as long as we are comfortable, and as long as we are blessed, 
then we forget about those that are out there that are not blessed, some of them just like us before we found Jesus. And one of the things that I want you to know, I believe God is waiting to involve himself in your campus ministry and do incredible things with you and through you. But I am absolutely confident that he will never involve himself in those things until we make a commitment to be selfless and to think about others. You see, too many believers in Jesus, too many campus ministers and too many campus students and too many who would claim to follow Jesus are involved in ministries that are not doing well but are comfortable, and they're not doing well because they're comfortable. Now what I mean by that is that as long as we're comfortable, we don't look around. We, Satan gets this focus on ourselves. And what God is looking, if you're going to turn the tide and turn dreams of incredible impact into reality, is going to require that you decide whether I feel like our ministry is great. I may have a great fellowship. We may have great relationships. God may doing, be doing great things in my life. Never forget the people who are living where you did before you knew Jesus. And if you look at our culture, if you look at the way that we are engaging in life, the divorce rate continues to be one that's alarming in our culture. Suicide rates continue to be unfathomably high. The number of people that are on drugs that are designed to help us deal with anxiety are greater than ever in history regardless of the economic social background that they come from. As a matter of fact, there's some evidence that those in the upper middle class are on more drugs designed to deal with anxiety than those that would be in a lower social economic setting. And we need to look and realize that sometimes the smile that people put on their face are really just a mask to cover the pains that they're because they have no hope. They don't know where to look, and the problem is we don't choose to look where Jesus would at others rather than ourselves. Nehemiah in his cushy job, Nehemiah will say, is sort of a bookend of chapter 1. As he begins to summarize, he says, I, and I was cupbearer to the king. He's saying, they're in misery, and I'm in the palace and comfortable. But I can't look at where I am. I've got to look to them. And so Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11 he says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delights in revering your name. When he turns to God, even, he doesn't turn with an emphasis on his superiority, his position, but he says, I am your servant, not the king's servant. I am your servant, and I'm asking you to delight in people who are not self-centered in looking at themselves, but in people who are interested in revering your name. It's almost that Nehemiah knows that he is going to fail unless God knows that he is not making this dream about him. And the incredible thing is, is that he has set himself up for success because when you start focusing on others, God begins to get involved in what's going on in your life. You see, whenever you think about others, you have this incredible about ability to get the attention of God. So turn selflessly, first of all. Man, he, Nehemiah said, I, I, I'm distressed. Secondly, turn passionately. He asked the people how they were doing, and he said, the people are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. And then in verse 4, he says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned. 
Now, understand there is a, a, a familial kind of connection. He knows that they are Jewish. He knows that he is Jewish. But as far as an intimate involvement with these people, they have been in exile, and they've been separated to where he may have some relatives, but there's no, been no close relationship. It would be very easy for him to be disengaged emotionally. And yet we see whenever he finds out that he, instead of being disengaged, he engaged himself in a passionate way. Now again, understand, Nehemiah as a cupbearer to the king has, lear- had, ha- has had learned, has been forced to learn to control his emotions. You'll see that later on in chapter 1. That he knew that he couldn't come, that Nehemiah could not be an emotionally unstable guy because the king was looking for someone with stable emotions that was going to encourage him. Historically, the cupbearer was supposed to be a person who was consistent in his emotion and never looked down. But you know, when Nehemiah finds out about the situation, the plight of people, of the brokenness and distress of people a long way from him, he becomes passionate. And the Bible says that he cries and he mourns, and he, sa- he says he does that for some days. And I want you to know, guys, I- I've been in ministry for a long time. And I've watched people come into ministry who are very professional. And after 30 plus years of ministry, what I can clearly see is, is that God does much more with passion than he does with professionalism. That if you look at the people that he chose, the, the, the resume was never significant, but the passion that they felt for people and for God mattered. Think about Nehemiah, remember, as he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 19, remember, Jesus goes up over the city. And he looks at it in Luke chapter 19. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets and reject those who have sent you. And he says, how I've longed to gather you in like a a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were unwilling. And he begins to weep, and he says, and see, your city lies desolate. Now, Jesus is about to undergo an incredibly difficult situation in order to redeem those people. But at that moment, he is selfless and he's passionate. There is a passion of the Christ that preceded his crucifixion, and that was a passion for people that moved him to the cross. And here's what I know. When you really involve passion in your life, passion can turn you from a cupbearer to a world changer. And if you're going to have a campus ministry that makes a difference, it's not going to be one that's made a difference without a passion for God. And you don't have to be jumping around crazy like I tend to be and like my son tends to be and my grandson and all the other hyperactive kids in my family. You don't have to be that. But you have to be passionate. You've got to care. And so you start off and you turn from selfishness to selflessness. And when you turn to that selfless view, you pursue their interests with the passion that you would have previously pursued your own desires with. Thirdly, turn prayerfully. Nehemiah turns to God. He says, then for some days, this is after he's cried and he's prayed and he's fasted. And he says, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the Lord, the God of heaven. And if you read Nehemiah's prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah prayed about his failures, but Nehemiah also prayed for success. And again, Nehemiah had already set himself up for success by acting unselfishly. Remember James chapter 4 where Jesus said, or James says, the brother of Jesus says, you don't, you don't have because you don't ask and yet when you do pray your prayers are not answered because you pray just for selfish motives 
You see, anytime that you have a dream, you have to be careful because you can make it about you. And rather than acting unselfishly, you put on a facade that's really about you, but you're doing this especially in ministry to where you're trying to make it about others and you play this hypocritical game and you focus on others, but it's all about you. The problem with that is it uninvolves God in your prayer life. So that when you pray for, pray for things that might even be within the will of God, God says, no, nah, not going to do that because it's all about you. And God has no interest in promoting you other than for you to promote him. But if he knows if you're selfless, so in your prayers you're wasting your time. But Nehemiah is absolutely selfless, and he knows that, listen, if this is going to happen, we're going to have to pray about it. Our theme at the Crossings Church this year is Luke 18.1, and it's, t- it's taken from Luke chapter 18, verse 1. And it's where it's, the Bible says that Jesus told him a, pr- a, a parable or a story to teach the dis- disciples, and here's our theme, that you should always pray and never give up. You see, we're involved in some things that, quite frankly, if God doesn't get involved in, we're not going to do well. We're going to fail. And so are you guys, by the way, your marriages, your relationships, your eternal salvation. If God's not involved, you're in trouble. But this year at the crossings, three years ago, we planted the, the Interbelt crossings and lost about 40 of our members over to that, many of them leaders within the group, and, and they are an integral part of, our, of our, our little church family as they have that Interbelt church. In August of this year, we'll send another 40 people that have already been, that have already been involved and already selected, but as of January 1, they abandoned their small groups, really, I guess, of January 7th. They abandoned their small groups that they're leading, the ministries that they're leading, whatever they're involved in, and they will be totally focused on the, on the Collinsville church plant that we'll be doing on the Illinois side of the river. So we lost 40 or 50 people a few years ago, three years ago. We're going to lose 40 or 50 now. That means we lost 100 people's incomes, 100 people's leadership. We still have to try to maintain the growth of the crossings in Winslow because if it doesn't grow and if it doesn't thrive, it really discourages churches from planting churches. You know, like there's this horrible thing. If we plant a church and then we die, the planting church is going to go, well, okay, you know what happens when you plant a church? You die. We don't really do that, so let's just look at us and take care of us, and we'll sort of maintain And so we've got to this point to where we know this year we were looking saying, God, you know, there's some incredible, we believe that God longs to do some things that are big. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. I believe he has plans to do more than we could ask or imagine. That almost sounds biblical. I believe he has plans for you both as ministries, but you see, ministries don't happen without individuals. But there's no ministry or individual is capable of doing what God wants them to do without God's power and without God's direction. We would be crushed by the enormity of it when God can move the mountain for us if we'll beg him in prayer. And one of the things that we wanted our campus ministry to pray about is they talk about launching that, that training that group that will be in Illinois, and they'll be on a couple or three campuses over there. And as they lose, they, our campus ministry took the biggest hit. When we planted the church three years ago, about 60%, I think, 65% of the members of that new team had either been one in high school or campus ministry, most of them in the campus ministry. And most of them were leaders in that. They're just recovering from that three years later. You can imagine those leaders are gone, and they are again the ones that are sending many of their people, the people that were going to be leading and trained to take over. Now they're trained, but instead of taking over, they're taking off. And there's something incredible cool about about that. Guys, I can't tell you how awesome it is to see that across all the ministries. 
I mean, for somebody to come into our campus ministry and they're totally lost and they're out of control and God puts them together and he uses them on this new church plant. We have a winter retreat for our high school students and every year it's, we have trouble getting a place in conflict. So this year, Carrie and I did it. Why don't we just bring them down here and they'll do their separate track. They can come to the, to the keynotes. But one of the cool things, if we got people that are going on the church plant that are in our teen ministry, they'll be graduating from high school and they'll be going as freshmen in college to this place to where, and they came from brokenness. There's some stuff that's really cool about saying goodbye to that, to some of you guys. I'm really glad to say goodbye to some of you. Uh, you know, it's a thrill. Not mentioning names there, J-Tone. But we have kids that started in our New Heights ministry, which is an school tutoring and mentoring program we really just tutor it's an excuse to mentor they come from families that are kind of section 8 housing quite frankly most of them what you would see as projects maybe individual homes in our area we have for the first time kids that came into that ministry whose parents aren't believers that will going out be going out on a church plant it's a thrill but there's a gap for us how are we going to do this how are we going to maintain that How do we keep doing what God wants us to do there and being this light and this pillar of support for these other churches? And what we've decided is that we can't unless God gets involved. So this year we have determined that when we look at all the obstacles to never give up but to pray. And I want to beg you guys to turn selflessly and to dream about what's going on. Turn passionately, but understand that your passion doesn't have enough fuel to move the mountains but your father does. And he can do incredible things through your ministry. And listen to me, through you, no matter how messed up you may think you are or how useless you might perceive yourself to being, God is an expert turning that which is discarded into that which is essential. Turn prayerfully. Number four, turn honestly. Turn honestly. Nehemiah says that I prayed before the Lord, the God of heaven. It's important to notice the kinds of prayers that he honored. Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love and those who, uh, to, for those who love him and obey his commands. He says, God, man, here's the truth. You're an awesome God, and you keep your promises to those who love and obey your commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eye open, your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you this day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant. He says, listen, God, here's the truth. You made a promise that you would bless those who were faithful and obedient, and here's the truth. We have been neither of those. And his honesty, he gets very personal. You see, he begins by being honest about his fellowship, the family that he's a part of, the Israelites. You see, that's the easiest level of honesty for us to critique our heritage. It's very easy for us to look back and go, you know, man, we've screwed up. It's easy for us to talk about some of our problems that we might have had. It's easy for us to talk about campus ministry in general and how it's messed up and it's not happening and it's not growing the way it should. And it's an easy confession, although an honest confession. But he moves from this brotherhood to where he goes to something more personal. He begins talking about his family. 
So now he's not talking about that brotherhood out there, just the general Israelite family, but now he's saying mom and dad and me. Right now, mom and dad. He's went from talking about campus ministry in general and woe is me and things are going, and understand this is an important part of things changing. Any addict will tell you, anybody who works with 12-step problems will tell you, nothing ever changes until there is an admission of a problem and a need for change. The refusal to do that in an addict is called denial, and what it's called in ministry sometimes is it's called ministry. It's that simple. We can make anything look good. I have some friends that are in ministry. One guy that I know super well. I've known him since I was a little kid. And when you look at his, at his, at his uh, resume, you would think, man, there's like 14 churches that are just mega churches across this nation. Then when you look at reality, they're not even there hardly. Somehow the promotion of self has overtaken the confession of problems and sin. And Nehemiah says, listen, man, we Israelites have screwed up. My father's screwed up. And then he comes to the level that I believe gets God's attention. He says, my father's and me. For some of you, you're right when you talk about the struggles of maybe your church, the struggles of your campus leadership possibly, and there's, those may need to be addressed. But if you want to get God's attention and involve you in making a difference to where that dream becomes a reality, you stop just confessing about them. And that's really not confession. That's more sometimes complaining. And you begin to confess about yourself. The book of Proverbs says, The one that hides his sin won't prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. I'm longing for God to show the Crossings Church and the campus ministry, RCM, mercy. I'm longing to see his power, his grace come into our lives. And the Bible says that when you humble yourself, God becomes your ally. But when you are prideful, you become his adversary. Turning honestly and confessing our sin obligates God to involve himself in our struggle. And it could be a down year for the crossings in 2007. It could be a tough year to RCM. But here's the thing. When we honestly admit our inability to do that, we lessen the likelihood that it's going to be a down year because all of a sudden it's not our strength. But God steps in and goes, guys, I am not going to let this happen. You have been honest with your weakness and faithful with your hearts. And I'm going to let great things happen. I'm going to cause that. So I've got to turn honestly. Number five, turn courageously. You see, here's the thing. As long as you have a great dream, there will be a great dream attacker. It's just the way that is. And it's going to require courage. In the month of Nisan, this is Nehemiah chapter 2. We're moving into Nehemiah chapter 2 now. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. And by the way, he had never been sad in his presence before because the king could execute cupbearers for not being someone who was upbeat. That would probably help many of us deal with our moodiness, wouldn't he? You moody? Not anymore. Why? I'm dead. Kind of got a constant there, right? So he says, I'd never been sad in his presence before, but he has this thing eating at him. He has this problem that he's concerned with people somewhere else in a passionate way. 
I'd not been sad in his presence before the sickness. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. Again, you have that honesty. Why is, why is he afraid? Because it's not the emotion. This, he could get fired. Again, he could get executed. And what you're going to find is, you're looking, you're going, I don't understand that cultural kind of thing. Why would that go on? Why would the king do that? It doesn't matter. Just what I want you to know, that what I want you to know, find a dreamer in the scriptures, and you will find a time when the dream will die if his courage doesn't grow. And here's the thing that God knows, is later on, and we'll talk about this, it's going to require courage down the road. If he doesn't have the courage to stand up in the palace, he's not going to have the courage to stand up in the field. So God allows the fear to be there so that he can deal with it. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, see, courage is not the absence of fear. It is acting and speaking in spite of fear. You see, I've been a coward all of my life, and it's something that I still fight. Since the time I was very young, I thought that something was wrong with me. I didn't think that I fit in. I thought that there was something that, that, that I was twisted and that there was something different than me and demented about me more than anybody else. And if you guys are familiar with me, you know that those thoughts got planted whenever I had a pedophilic great-grandfather who abused me. But regardless of what happened, it made me constantly afraid that people were going to not like me, that people were going to think that I was, the, and so I was constantly afraid of rejecting, afraid that I wouldn't measure up, afraid that I would be nothing. And all along I thought, man, God, I want to be courage, courageous, but I can't act courageously because I have fear. And Nehemiah teaches me again that courage is not the absence of fear. And so I don't freak out when I'm afraid that it's when I see somebody, I think, man, if I share my faith with them, they're going, they're going, they're going to reject me, and, and I'm afraid of that. Forty years later, I'm still afraid. I don't get freaked out about it. I just decide, you know, I can still be courageous, although I'm a coward. Because courage is not the absence of fear. It's the presence of an trust where you do what's right anyway. Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king. And understand, if you're going to have a great dream, there's going to come that time to where you're going to be quaking in your boots. Don't freak out. Don't worry. Don't go, oh, where's my faith in God? Just go, I'm so afraid, but. Make your mission big and your butt little, okay? What some of us have worked on all our lives, right? Spiritualize that, all right? I was very afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins? Its gates have been, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, What is it you want? And I think he had another burst of fear because he says, Then I prayed to the God of heaven. And I answered the king. He answered the one who intimidated him. And he talked to the one first who gave him strength and courage. You see, we're going to have to answer those that we're afraid of all our time, all the time in our lives. Satan will always make sure they're there. But if we've talked to the one that gives us confidence, 
a king isn't nearly as powerful as the king. You see, I need to move in a way that is bold and courageous, one that is displaying my faith over my fears. Number six, after I, when I do, when I move boldly, I need to make sure that I'm moving strategically. You notice the last thing before he says, I prayed to God and I answered the king. He does that because the king has asked him a question. What is it you want or what is it you need, some translations say. What I have found often about dreamers, and if you're naturally a dreamer, you probably are a person who is a big picture person, but you're not good at details. And one of the problems that dreamers fall into is that they can have this big, man, I can dream the most incredible things. I passed that to someone that my son, Carrie. Man, he can have the greatest dream. He can envision something going on in the campus ministry, and some event that they're going to have or something happening. And, man, and he just paints it beautiful. And you go, what? how are you going to do that? And he'll say, I don't know. Which the honesty is essential, but you've got to be able to be strategic. For some of you going, man, I want God to use me to plant a great, to, to have a great campus ministry that make a difference. Okay, what do you need? And all of a sudden, that question, you're going, what are you, what are you saying? You're trying to rain on my parade? The king was not raining on the parade. He just knew that if there was going to be a dream come true, it was going to require some specific needs being addressed. And for some of us, we want to have great things happen, but we've never asked ourselves, what really will it take? I mean, I want to have great impact on the campus. What's it going to take? Well, let me suggest to you one thing it's going to take is a mate if you're going to be married, unless you're, you know, a eunuch for the kingdom, as the Bible would describe someone who has no interest in marriage or a relationship outside of what you're doing in the church, which is probably none of you. So you know what I mean, Right. <laughs> Some of you are hoping you get married before the weekend's out, and so you're going, okay, I want to build a great campus ministry. Will you marry me? That's going to be the line, girls, all right, or guys, maybe. You need a mate who's going to support you and walk beside you. I've been involved in ministry again long enough to watch, especially with churches that have grown and ministries that have been planted, new ministries. I have yet to see the one that functions without a partnership between husband and wives. And that doesn't mean that, 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 you know, that, that you've got to have the same skills or the same, but I'm telling you, you need to have somebody with a partner with the same passion. And if you're going to move strategically, then that means you're going to immediately eliminate some people who are not going to be able to help you with your dream. You may need someone to train you, to disciple you in a way that you want to do great things, but quite frankly... You would have never made it to cupbearer. The cupbearer, if you remember the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they brought people in, and they were the ones that were sort of good-looking, and they were very wise, or, or very social, and they were the able to communicate, and, and you know, they carried the image of a palace. For some of you, you naturally, quite frankly, you know, you're kind of annoying. I can relate to that, all right? We would not have been cupbearers. We would have been executed, Okay. I want to do great things for God. What do you need? You need to grow up. You need to stop everybody. You know, if, if everybody looks at you and goes, oh, that's just so-and-so, or she's just, and they just like, you're that person, you know, they go, oh, just don't, don't, just don't worry about them. That's just Johnny. 
And I don't know if there's a Johnny that's here that's not personal, okay? You know, or, or Susie. Sorry, Susie. You know, you, you know what I'm talking about, though, don't you? Or maybe you've got that character flaw, and it's, maybe you've even kept it hid. Maybe you're not that obnoxious person that just is always in conflict or, or is always a person who has to be the center of attention and people just get exhausted by. Maybe you're that person that everybody loves, but down deep you've got a sin that's eating you alive, and you've never confessed it. And you've never dealt with the, the grip that it has on your life. I am overwhelmed by the number of friends that I know in ministry who get involved in pornography and extramarital affairs. It is a crime. Can I let you know, if you're going to have God fulfill a dream, you probably ought to be going, if I've got a problem with it, I need to find somebody or some place or something that's going to help me deal with the problems in my life in a real way. Where they're not going to just overlook it, but they're going to hold you accountable and believe that God can work it. But what you've got to move strategically. What is it that you need? And if you notice, Nehemiah says this. The king says, Nehemiah, what is your need? And he says, I prayed to God and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and your servant has, been found, has found favor in your sight, let him send me to, to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will your journey take? And when you get back, if it pleases the king to send me a... Uh, I'll set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they'll provide me safe contact until I arrive in Judea. Get me some bodyguards to send me through the ref areas. I need that. I'll need some time off. And then he says, and may it also, may I have a letter to ask for a keeper of the king's forest so he'll give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence that I'll occupy. What do you need? Here's what I need. It wasn't just some pipe dream. It wasn't just something like, well, let's get caught up in the emotion of the dream. At some point, there has to become the reality of what it takes to see the dream come true. You will never do it on your own, but understand, it will involve you becoming what God wants you to be, and you need to know what it is you need. Number seven, move resolutely. Nehemiah is sent by the king. When he gets there, he runs into a guy named Sam Ballot and a guy named Tobiah. Nehemiah 2.10 says, when, the Sam Ballot, the, the, when Sam Ballot, the Hornite, and Tobiah, the Amorite official, heard about this, the king sending him, they were very much displeased that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. When you begin to tackle your dream, Satan will send someone to tackle you. Man, I, I can't tell you how many friends I had when we started in ministry 20 years ago, 30 years ago now, 30 years. They were going, man, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And none of my closest friends are even still in ministry. They, they, they don't even have a little dream anymore. And there's a thousand reasons, oh, the church is so hard and it picks on its, and that may play a role in it, but look, can I tell you, for you guys, you need to know this. God wants to use you to, great, to do great things, but if you think you're going to do great things and not be picked on and have critics and have people taking shots at you, it's not going to happen. And so you're going to have to be resolute in that. God has done some cool things in my life and through my ministry. I don't think any of them would have happened if there had not been resolution. I tell people all the time, the best thing I'm an example of is getting back up. 
Man, if you're looking for somebody who's a model of like, oh, let's shit Robert, this consistent guy who never has any problems, who never, that's just not my life or my ministry. It's not what Satan would allow. It's not what I am naturally. But what I know is there's something that matters enough for me to get back up and to fight opposition. And I think the people that know me best would say when I'm at my best is when opposition and hardship occurs. And the reason I think that I rise on that occasion it's not because of this great sense. I believe God's with me, but I think also there's this awareness that Satan is now trying to derail something that I've longed for and that God is working in. And I will not allow that to happen. There has to be this decision for you guys. When you leave here, you go back and you say, oh, I want my campus ministry to be different until the first alluring thing or the first problem comes up. There's no resolution in your resolution. There's no turning of the heart, so there's no turning of the ministry. And for some of us this weekend, we just need to decide that come hell or high water, when we go home, we're going to make a difference on the campuses. Turn resolutely. Number eight, turn interdependently. In our country, we have the Declaration of Independence, which is anathema to Jesus Christ. We need him and we need each other. You see, here's the thing. You will never accomplish the dream on your own. If you wait on others to get started, you'll never start. If you never involve others, you'll never finish. I want you to notice, Nehemiah, and this is, this is one of the things when I was reading through the book one time that just struck me. Because in Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2, there is a dominant of one word in Nehemiah 1 and Nehemiah 2. You know what it is? Anybody guess? I or me. It's the dominant word in Nehemiah chapter 1, all the way through chapter 1, all the way down through Nehemiah chapter 2, around verse 17, and something changes. I want to read some of this, and here's what I want you to know. Again, somebody has to have a dream. Somebody has to start a dream. But dream starters require team joiners. Nehemiah gets to the city, and again, he continues his personal pronoun. I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding. By night, I went throughout the valley gate towards the jackal wall and the dung gate, exploring the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through it. So I went up to the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and reentered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had, not, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or any others. But notice what he says. I have not said anything to the others who would be necessary to seeing the dream completed. And that's not what he says. What he says, I had not said anything to the others who would be doing the work. 
You see, what Nehemiah transitions from is, 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 is this, from a guy who has a personal vision from God. It's God with the dream to begin with. Nehemiah says, God put it in my heart. It's my dream. It's mine. And he's right. But if it doesn't go anywhere beyond that, then all it is is a dream that will never be realized. See, Nehemiah is a great man, but he's not great enough to accomplish on his own what others are required to do. And God won't allow that to happen because it would be another Tower of Babel situation to where Nehemiah is bringing glory to himself. So Nehemiah is given a dream by God, and it dwells in his heart, but God and Nehemiah knows that it takes others to fulfill the dream. So he says in verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. And all of a sudden, God's dream goes from God's dream to Nehemiah to Nehemiah to the entire group of people that are the remnants that's in Jerusalem, and incredible things happen. You see, whenever I was in school for ministry a long time ago in the southern Illinois, there was no big churches. I grew up in a church of about 30 people that started in the living room of our home. Fifty years later from that time, it's still about 30 people, and the last names there are the same. And I was in trouble. I had a lot of bad things happen. I was, I was always there, and I'd went, go to church camp, and there was a guy there named Mike Napier who always talked about God using people for great things and God wanting to do something extraordinary and wanting to use those campers to build churches that will make a difference. And it ended up that Mike would end up being the president of the school that I went to. And I wasn't with him in camp anymore, but in the classroom, Mike would talk and say, Guys, God is longing to build a church of a thousand in southern Illinois, in Illinois. And then another one. And then another one. And here's the thing. There was no church of a thousand within a hundred miles of where we lived. And it didn't change Mike's view because Mike's dream, I believe, was from God. And the dream that I had, it's weird because I began to pick that up. It was a dream that Mike had of planting churches and having new churches that would grow up and be churches. And his, his words were a church of a thousand. And while the church of a thousand never came through in my ministry, God said it in the heart. It wasn't my dream. It was God's dream that, got, got, that he gave to Mike and that became mine through adoption. And for some of you, you're not natural dreamers. You don't have that kind of thing. And God doesn't wire us all the same. Some of you are great at the details, which sometimes we're horrible at. We need each other. But here's what we need. We need some of our people who are sometimes unemotional and detached to start adopting a dream. That we begin to step back and go, you know, I didn't birth this dream, but I can adopt it. And, and a great adoptive parent, the thing that characterizes them is that that which is in their possession may be through adoption, but you cannot tell that it was not theirs from birth. Southern Illinois is not a place of church growth. The average church in the southern half of the state is around 45 to 50 people, I'm guessing. I grew up in a church of 30. God has blessed me in our ministry. I've got to be a part of two churches, starting two churches that in our area have attendance of over 500. 
I've got to see the blessing now of that church planting others, and it's going to go on, and it's going to happen. God is going to work in that Interbelt church, and God is going to work in the Collinsville church, and I'm praying that someday that in our area, in that heartland, to where it seems so lacking in heart for God, that there will be a spring of life that comes up. It's my dream. It's not about me. If God were going to make it about somebody individually, he would pick someone other than me, right? Okay, eeny, meeny, miny, moe. You know what I mean? Out the door you go. You're done. You're not, I need somebody. It's about him, and it requires others. And I always chuckle when people will talk to me and say, yeah, Robert, what do you think would happen? You know, you, about you, you're a strong personality indicating sometimes that the crossings or whatever is about me. And the truth is, it's not. It's about God working in someone who longs to see what God wants done, done in a personal way. And that can be you. And that needs to be every one of our campus students. It needs to be those in our high school if we're going to do that. It's phenomenal things can happen. We have kids that are in the Heights ministry that are in seventh grade, coming out of there in seventh, eighth grade, and they come from these horrible backgrounds. You know what they're already talking about? When they're going to go on church plants. I mean, I could tell you, we've got a bunch of high school students that are here, a bunch of college students. If, if you were, and I'm, I'm, I make ruin my point right now here, okay? So if this doesn't help me, I, you guys act like you're asleep. Okay. Raise your hand if you're from, from, the, uh, from, a, from the crossings in one way or the other, either plant or raise your hand for a second, okay? If you kind of look around. Now keep your hands up, okay? Now then, for those of you that are from the crossings, keep your hand up if you have thought about being on a church plant in the future. Drop your hands if you've not. Okay, you can put your hands down. It's a dream that's being adopted. And you will find no church with more screwed up people and more weakness than ours. You will find a leadership that has to fight harder to be what God wants them to be, to be consistent in their quiet times, to make sure that they don't get discouraged, to make sure they don't do something stupid and lose their temper, to make sure that they're not saying foolish things. You won't find that. But what I tell you is that God will work in the weakness of those who will care about others, who will be honest about themselves and depend on him, and they'll do it with passion in a way that doesn't get pushed aside, but instead they are bold and they're confident, and they know that for the dream to be fulfilled, no one person will do it, but it will be a collection of the broken that God places together to become the healer and the bringers of wholeness. And God wants to involve you in that. And it's my prayer that you'll start with Nehemiah tonight and you will go beyond, just to begin with, to get your eyes off yourself. You got everything planned out. I was speaking at Oklahoma Christian at their homecoming service one time, and I began to talk with some students before, and I, I knew I was speaking for three days. And so I began to ask them, what are your plans after you get out of school? And every one of them, they began to talk. They talked about where they were going to move, and they said, and I talked to like 15 or 20 students. 
out of 20 students, whatever, 15 or 20 students, every one of them knew where they thought they were going to look for jobs. And every one of them was going to look for jobs. You know why they looked there? Because it was a job market that was good for their particular degree. They knew that they were going to build a family there, they thought. And so they also talked about moving there because of the quality of the school systems. They're in a Christian school, so we know they hadn't, they're single. They hadn't even had sex yet, and they're thinking about, right? You don't have sex if you're in a Christian school. Surely not. Anyway, they're already thinking about families in the school system, and they thought about the entertainment opportunities. You know what I found out in everyone that I asked? You know what never came up? If there was a church that was there could, that could help them become what God wanted them to be to make a difference in the world. Not one. So you see, sometimes we have this big dream. Oh, God, I want you to do great things for me. But we're still planning for me and not his dream. Can we turn the tide on that? Can some of you decide that the most important thing in your life is not your job or the quality of the school system or how good, you know, the, the opportunities for entertainment are you know, you're not going to move to Clemson to see a good football team you're not going to leave Alabama to go right you know that's supposed to be funny and all you guys from Alabama are going to stone me later but can I encourage you to dream big and move confidently the end of Nehemiah chapter 2 says I was out and told these people about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. By the way, God's grace means both his gifts. It's the word charisma, charismatic in the New Testament that we get that word karyos from. It's not just forgiveness, it's empowerment. I told him about the gracious hand of my God on me that the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Samballat, the Hornite, Tobiah, the Amorite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked us and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start building. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem. And what could not be accomplished in decades was accomplished in 52 days. I pray that you're that generation that makes Christianity relevant again in our culture, in our colleges. I believe incredible. I, I can't even imagine with the gifts and the talents that some of you have what could be. But if there's going to be a dream come true, there has to be a turning of the tide in the believer. Would you bow and pray with me? Father, I pray that you would move in our hearts to see a dream. Father, when you picture the church, you picture this entity that is a light to the world, that it's salt, that it's a tower, that it's a haven, that it's a place of rescue. And Father, when I look at what we are, it doesn't seem to match up with what you describe as a church. And Father, I think because we've not embraced the dream, you've not fulfilled the dream. 
Father, I pray that we'll be like Nehemiah, and tonight we'll decide that this seminar is not just about us showing up and having a good time, but we're going to learn, and we're going to go back to our campuses, and we're going to make a difference. We're going to dream, but we're going to turn in a way that allows the God of heaven to give us grace and allow us to fulfill the dream even while others mock us. Father, move us, I pray, in your son's name.